Welcome to This Week in Digital Trust, 11M's regular podcast about privacy, security and other digital issues. In this week's episode, we debate the merits of the federal government's latest plans to fix social media, this time by unmasking anonymous commentators who make defamatory posts. We also give a bit of attention to the UK Information Commissioner's missive at facial recognition company Clearview AI. And finally, we explore what impact the growing use of private consulting firms by the Australian government in the tech space has for privacy and security outcomes. Enjoy the show. Hey, Jordan. How are you going? Um, good, Arch. How are you? Pretty good. Um, I'm doing well. Um, there is a lot going on this week. There have been yeah. some big conversations happening around all the stuff we love about, you know, privacy and online safety and digital issues. So, in, lot to get into. Indeed, many, many in the last day or two. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, should we start? Let's. We got to start with uh, online defamation. Um, you know, there's so uh, very recent announcement from the federal government that. Um, then a new crusade to unmask anonymous commenters online and that make defam- defamatory posts, um, which is also linked to a, um, a, a broader swipe at big tech, I suppose, from the federal government, the next one, which is a, a parliamentary inquiry into social media and online safety. Um, so, yeah, yeah, just just announced in the couple, last couple of days um, uh, the interesting bit from our point of view that it, that I wanted to talk to you about is um, is these proposed laws to to require social media platforms to collect the you know re- real names, uh, phone numbers, and email addresses of um, of their users, and to essentially make them available to courts in defamation proceedings. So there'd be a complaint mechanism that a social media platform has to have in place where you could voluntarily, you know, unmask yourself and then, you know, failing that if a person institutes proceedings, the courts could access, um, you know, yeah, real name contact details in order to support the the victim's um, defamation proceedings. Um, the mechanism is a funny, funny one as well in, in Australia anyway. It's a kind of American Section 230 argument um, or where you would... Um, unless social media platforms do this, um, they would be designated as the publishers of of those comments, so they themselves would be liable for that kind of defamation claim. Um, so yeah, it's 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 uh, it's it's a funny one. What what, what, were you, what were your thoughts? This approach of um, you know online safety through defamation. Yeah, yeah. Well, that <laughs> that that's pretty much the neat summary of it. I mean, I think. You know, it looks like with many of these things around online safety or social media generally, they're all framed in, you know, very broad terms around sort of a whole category of harms and ills that these platforms represent. And then, you know, the prescription often is sort of one obscure or one very specific thing. And so, you know, online safety through defamation is a neat summary because, you know, when they, when they, when this was announced, it was kind of speaking to, toxicity and uh you know the prime minister sort of spoke to sort of the harassment and bullying and sledging and then you know this is the sort of stuff you know we need to clean up these online environments through social media but as you say it is very very 
expressly focused around defamation, which is a very sort of narrow and, and curious way to address that bigger problem. And um, I think when you when you look at the you look at the sort of exposure draft, you start to get a sense that you know it is not about all of you know what is wrong with social media and even all of what is wrong in terms of people's experiences of you know harassment or abuse it is very much specifically about one category of toxicity around sort of defamatory comments and it is also very specifically about shifting responsibility for that kind of defamation liability for that defamation from one group of organizations to another that being from media to to social media because if you look at the framing of the of the of the bill um it's very explicitly just despite what you know the the may have been said at press conferences by the government when they announced it being about a bigger thing the bill itself speaks very specifically to being a reaction against the bill and Vola case which um essentially put the responsibility um for defamatory comments um, on sort of media companies, social media pages on the media companies themselves. So where maybe previously the media companies might have said, well, that's on our Facebook page. It's, it's Facebook. It was the Vola case said, well, actually that the media companies were responsibility. And this reform, these proposed laws explicitly address that and tackle that by saying, well, actually, we're going to push the responsibility back onto the social media companies. We're going to, you know, take the liability away from the media companies. So it's, you know, when you start to sort of unpick it and dig into it, it's it's a lot more specific. And to me, it, it sort of, it brought for me memories of the sort of the news media bargaining code, which was kind of, you know, perhaps the government's first or sort of most first notable foray into sort of reforms against mm. the social media companies. And, you know, it was the first thing they did sort of on the back of the digital platforms inquiry. And it was sort of positioned as, okay, finally we're tackling um, big, big tech. We're tackling the social media companies with some reforms and regulations, but that the big, you know, the news media bargaining code was again very specifically about a set of grievances that the media companies had about the way their published content was being used and distributed on social media without them getting a financial benefit for it. And so the news media bargaining code tackled that for the benefit of the media companies, particularly the bigger ones, and did really nothing to address a lot of the other issues that we talk about when it comes to social media, particularly around, you know, monetization of our personal data and so on and so forth. So I think, you know, what I'm seeing here is really they're pushing, pushing responsibility back through this legislation from the media companies onto the social media companies around defamation. Yeah, that's, it's a really interesting point you make in that, that analysis, uh, the, the link to the, the, the news media bargaining code, right? And I, th I remember us talking about this at the time at, of the news media, media bargaining code about being concerned that, you know, that, that in the public debate where we're saying, you know, the, the, the selling of those, of that, and, and it seems like this defamation um, law is framed around these broader, you know, we're pushing back against the big, um, big tech companies and we're, we're, um, you know, fighting for online safety, pushing back against these monopolies. But in fact, the actual, you know, you're spending the political, the broader political capital for a very focused, very specific solution, which only really benefits a few small, you know, the people who, who have access and resources to, 
push a, a defamation claim. But um, so I think that's a really interesting point. But I want to I want to push back on the um, the shifting of liability or, or responsibility onto the social media companies because I I mean they have to do something and if this law gets passed they'll have to collect people's information. But it really shifts the cost I think on the individual. Um, not to not it, it takes it away from the media company from you know the the which was the result of the Vola case that um, and pushes it onto individuals to a they're bearing the cost of having to provide their details in case they provide a they they defame someone and ultimately have to be prosecuted which is going to be such a tiny proportion of 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 the people on social media but. You know, so so people are bearing this privacy cost in order to defend against online defamation, and and individuals are bearing the cost of policing speech about them online. Right? The yeah. I, um, the the defamation law is you know tremendous. I mean, the courts generally are tremendously expensive and inaccessible. Um, you know, I think there's there's some idea in this law that you know the attorney general might help people bring. Um, bring defamation claims but but you know it's it's not a it's not an accessible mechanism for 99% of the population it's not a practical way to to control speech online in fact um, you know the the outcome of the Vola case where you know which put media companies on notice to you know to make sure that they're um, to to moderate their comment sections and to make sure that they're civil and and you know not defamatory and not you know in the case of you know that the, the Vola case in particular quite vile and you know ab abusive um, you know putting that on that obligation on the owners of the communities in which the comments are made seems to me like a much more sensible much more appropriate like, appropriate position. Um, you know, maybe that's unsympathetic because I don't, you know, run a news media company or something and, <laughs> and don't appreciate the costs of, of managing and moderating. But, um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it ultimately puts a lot more cost on. It's, it's ultimately shifting costs from, from news media companies or the managers of, of, um, of communities onto the members of the communities to police through the courts rather than the manager of the community to police through moderation of that community, which I think is, you know, problematic. I, I also just hate the, the framing of online um, um, dis problems with online discourse as, as a problem with anonymity, which is just not, you know, the, the, um, the, 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 the claim that the solution to allow, you know, the problems of civility and, and toxicity in online discourse is well at least if, if everybody was operating under their real name most of the horrible comments that happen on facebook are under people's real names you know a lot of the toxicity online's legitimately just people being awful to each other and being fully fully identified so totally. yeah. I, yeah anyway i, I mean I, problematic I, even, on most, yeah. I think so i think i mean i i think the i mean i i found the anonymity issue even as it relates to defamation a, a bit curious I mean I, I did kind of wonder of the truly 
the, you know, I guess how truly defamatory it is to get, you know, uh, called out by someone who's anonymous. I mean, what is the stature of that person online that is somehow having a, a major impact on someone else's reputation? Um, you know, it, it's it a is good a point, right? Yeah. De de defamation is about is about reputation, not about yeah. abuse, right. right? And yeah, and and if if the per if a person is uh, some anonymous troll, and we yeah, can all if, agree if, on that, you know, then what's the reputational harm? Yeah. Exactly. Like if you know Mike one seven three four two with an egg shaped icon calls you something. Yeah. I mean, how truly defamatory is that? I mean, it was deliciously ironic that when announcing this very measure some random people walked behind the prime minister and yeah during his press conference and yelled out liar liar uh and it was you know almost sort of symbolic it was like you know who are they and so what you know what stature does their you know what status does, does their comment have and you know when you parallel that online so even as it goes to def defamation i think anonymity is not necessarily at the heart of it and then you know when you talk more broadly about toxicity on these platforms um you know the, the 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 scope of what makes social media toxic it has a lot more to do with um defamatory comments it's about just outright abuse it's about uh you know the the, the way the platforms are set up to amplify outrage it's the pylon you know it's the fact not just that a particular anonymous person is saying something but it's the ability for you know like negative sentiment you know, for people to pile on and direct that at people. These are the things that I think contribute to toxicity. And, and I don't think this reform does anything to address that. You know, we need exactly. I, I, and, and the, I, I think it's in fact harmful, yeah. right? And again, like just coming back to the news media, media bargaining code, it's, it's taking a, a problem that we all agree is an issue and presenting, framing this thing as a solution, which is not a solution to that problem. It's a solution to a very specific set of, you know, wealthy, privileged individuals' concerns. Like, like the only people who benefit from this are the kind of people who might pursue a defamation claim, right? Which, which are overwhelmingly like people, pu public figures with, with significant resources or, you know, others with significant resources, 99% of people don't benefit from this. It doesn't solve the toxicity problem. And so we're burning the concern, the political capital that exists in relation to, um, in relation to the toxicity problem on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how much, you know, we, we have to ask the question for, you know, how much appetite and energy will I mean, these, these are tough battles to go in up against yeah. these big tech companies and social media platforms how much capital does government have how much appetite does it have to keep going and proposing these reforms and you know given that that's probably limited you know let's focus on the things that matter and and it's even worse than that i think it's not just that the policy in this case is not effective it's that as we see in this space in, you know this complex space of sort of online regulation and tech policy there are side effects there are bad side effects to bad policy so you know um there's a great kind of comparison that we could look at around uh, south korea which introduced exactly this measure back in 2007 so that all users of sites that had more than 300,000 visitors had to be identified um and so they introduced that measure and again the sort of the, the, the rationale was the same. It was around abuse and kind of defamatory comments. But having introduced it, they went off and studied what was the effect. And it had no 
no really decrease in the amount of online abuse and it didn't prevent misinformation. Um, so it wasn't effective, but worse than that, um, it was struck down eventually by their constitutional court for being unconstitutional because it was being seen to discourage people from criticising influential people on, on, on these online platforms for fear of punishment. Um, so, you know, it had a, a really bad adverse effect in terms of freedom of speech. And then that's to say nothing of, you know, what we know to be the importance of anonymity for, you know, people who are in marginalised communities or who just fear, you know, fear being identified. But, you know, victims of domestic violence, um, you know, people who are in maybe politically disenfranchised groups who want to have a voice, this ha can have a chilling effect on their ability to participate. And there was a great uh, sort of quote that came out of the, you know, the Constitutional Court's ruling in Korea, which was, even if there is a side effect to online anonymity, it should be strongly protected for its constitutional value, which, you know, sums up that, okay, one, this is a narrow set of things you're trying to address, but even if we are trying to address, you know, anonymity as it relates to defamation, the impact of doing that is, 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 the adverse impact of doing that uh, is not something we should take on, given its impact on constitutional rights like freedom of speech and and, and all that. So, I, I think it's a bundle of bundle of bad, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. It doesn't work. Even if it did work, we shouldn't do it. Um, is is that summary? I mean, yeah, I I, I agree. And you know, the 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 justification. The, the policy justification seems to be, it seems to be, again, I, I've said this a couple of times, but it's, it's, it's tying on to this like public outrage, right? And the fear and, and, and discomfort about trolls online and w without any real like well-defined specific policy justification right mm -hmm. like like it, it'd be nice to see us dig into you know like like that 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 south korean example you know what are the costs what are the benefits who does this what what, what are the actual practical outcomes is this just a you know controlling chilling speech about high profile individuals um you know there was a the there's a survey in the um smh that um that said, you know, seemed to indicate that a lot of people were, you know, two thirds of Australian adults back the idea of holding Facebook and other social media companies responsible for posts made on their platforms. I mean, again, I don't think that's what this law does. This law, well, it only does that if they refuse to collect identifying details. Um, and 70% of people want anonymous trolls to be revealed, to be revealed. Um, and again, you know, it's not. I, I don't know. I I I I think it's problematic to, um, to to just rely on it or, or to be citing a, a, a survey, general public attitudes, because you know, yeah, the the. I think if you present the general public with or the the, the responses to those surveys, with this like very good evidence that most of the online trolls are unmasked and it unmasked and it doesn't really make a difference um and you present them with these these the 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 difficulties with these policy positions and the complexities um you know i i'm not sure that that's going to be the outcome 
there's there's yeah. kind of this you know you you've got to rely on public opinion to, directionally where where do we need to go with policy but like in terms of the specific the specific outcomes yeah, um, and the solution yeah. i mean the solution i think requires a bit more you know you know consi considered a considered expert kind of um uh, input and you know looking to other jurisdictions like you say and it's a bit problematic i think particularly when we're talking about like like in the Korea case found we're talking about constitutional rights we're talking about a broader set of rights it, 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 you know going to the mob and saying well here's yep. what the mob think that we should just do this uh, when there are these after effects and side effects is problematic yeah the, the mob supports it right because it's it's a plausible solution but we've tried it and in fact it doesn't work yeah. you know you need to add that layer uh, yeah i i also thought it was you know it's funny turning to you know turning to the populace turning to the faceless mob um on you know to for opinions about what to do about another a different faceless, mob. faceless the, mob the survey faceless mob um has has opinions on what to do for yeah. the the online face yeah. faceless yeah. mob exactly yeah right. <laughs> entertaining let's move on let's um Sure. let's go to the uk clear view um so the the uk um information commissioner elizabeth denham um this week uh, announced that she intended to find clearview ai 17 million pounds about 31 million australian um for breaches of the uk uk data protection laws um you know we'll we'll remember that that clearview ai is this um kind of facial recognition startup scrapes um scrapes uh photos from publicly available sources social media networks and online repositories that kind of thing um and runs facial recognition on it then sells that to law enforcement to you know if you've got a photo they'll point to a pub use their facial recognition algorithms to point to a publicly available photo of that person or, yeah know, yeah and so this, this this was sort of the almost like the second half of what was actually a joint investigation with the Australian Information Commissioner, the OAIC. Um, so the OAIC and the ICO in the UK announced in July 2020 that they were going to be looking into Clearview AI. And a couple of weeks ago, the OAIC put its determination out, which we, we actually chatted about. And, uh, you know, it made it made the news. So Australia made the news globally around this for good reasons. Um, and the OAIC found that Clearview was in breach of Australian law and had, and had ordered them to stop collecting images and biometric templates from individuals in Australia and to destroy all the existing images and templates they had collected in Australia. So, yeah, like I said, that was... That was a strong stance from our information commissioner. Um, what well, I guess it was interesting to see that the I mean the ICO's announcement this week is also good because they're part of the same package of investigations. But um, there wasn't a fine in the Australian announcement. I mean that that was the big thing that jumped out about this one was like not only is it a strong statement against what Clearview AI are doing, but the ICO are going to hit them with a seventeen million. Uh, pound fine what why i mean what's your take why why didn't we find them in australia it's really interesting right because yeah you you look at this joint investigation very similar findings in terms i mean different laws but very similar findings very strong statements from both regulators that you know this this kind of activity is you know extremely harmful to privacy puts people at very significant risk um in terms of, yeah, th um, through 
particularly through like misidentification and over enforcement and bias and all of these all of these issues um you know so so really damning opinions and then yeah and then the the uk one ends with a 30 30 million dollar fine and the the australia one ends with a stern reprimand um i think i, I think there are a couple reasons and um the the first is simply that the maximum fine in australia is 2.2 million dollars at the moment so even if there had been a fine to the maximum in australia it's two point two. We, we we certainly can't go to that kind of thirty million plus level. Um, but you know, I mean, fine would have been warranted in my view anyway. I think the second one is a practical one in in Australia. Um, the second reason um, in Australia, the OAIC does not have a power to levy fines directly. They they have to apply to the federal court for a civil penalty order. The federal court can agree to initiate uh, to to issue that order but essentially the OAIC has to prove their case to the federal court um, whereas in the UK I don't think that's the case my understanding of the UK is just the 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 commissioner Elizabeth can just find people I mean I'm sure there's processes around it there are processes around it but but there's not that same requirement to go to the federal court and and that's a real limitation you know the 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 OAIC has been in um been in federal court with Facebook um, for at least a year now um, about Cambridge Analytica stuff, which happened back in 2018, the Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, they, Noting they're that they're a lean, yeah, sorry, I was about to say they're yeah. a very small and lean op operation. They're they're a small organisation. They don't have, they just don't have the funds to to pursue many or multiple. Um, federal court matters at the same time. I, so, I mean, the, the OAIC hasn't said that that's the reason um, uh, and they don't provide much of a justification around whether or not they'd be seeking damages. They might still, I think they could still, I'm not sure, maybe they couldn't. Um, but the, yeah, so so it's it, there's not a clear statement from the OAIC as to whether that's the case, but, but I do think, I do think that is, that's it. Um, they, they just don't have the resources and, you know, they'd probably spend honestly $2 million plus clawing, seeking to claw back a $2 million fine. You know, um, I, I don't think, yeah, anyway, it's, I think it's really problematic. Um, the, the, the structure of, of those penalties in Australia at the moment, the funding of the OAIC, um, I'd note that both of those those issues, the um, the funding of the OSC and the the volume of the penalty amounts are, are live discussions around reform at the moment. Um, so there's there are proposals in um, in the, um, the the Privacy Act review discussion paper um, that for for different models of funding and industry levy or a, you know just improved government funding for the OSC to make sure that they do have the resources to pursue these kinds of actions and there's also um, uh, a proposed bill at the moment that would the online privacy bill that would um, would up the penalties to a maximum uh, to, to align with consumer protection laws which is 10 million dollar fines or 10% of your Australian revenue or three times the benefit you got from the breach. So I think, yeah, I think, I think there's, 
Sorry? Better days ahead, we hope. With, with yeah, better days to, ahead. Yeah, yeah. And, and like, you know, I, I think, yeah, that, that I think we we can certainly take from it. And I think there's some um, some good in the sort of sense of alignment and reinforcement by the kind of these respective regulators working together on an investigations like this, uh, putting out kind of consistent statements and views on the technologies like this. And then hopefully we can kind of also see, as you said, an uplift in our local regulators' ability to sort of, you know, levy fines and pursue regulatory actions. So I think that's, that's, that'd be a good thing to see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was keen to kind of move on to another topic, Jordan. Um, we were slightly sort of adjacent, maybe a little bit different to what we've just discussed. But um, the the Senate uh, this week put out a report into the Australian Public Service, which was quite damning about the use of um, external contractors, particularly around ICT projects and skill sets, um, and most more specifically around the use of those contractors for what they called core ongoing work. Um, so there's this sort of uh, labelling of the hollowing out of the Australian public service through the use of these external contractors. And there were some really interesting findings in this that I thought we should talk about because they have, I think, implications for you know, technology policy and, and even sort of privacy and security initiatives. But, you know, one of them was that there are now more temporary contract workers in government technology projects than full-time APS staff, which is, you know, quite, quite That's stark. That's an amazing statistic, yeah. Yeah. And then kind of related to that is that um, the, the the report found that there's close, close to $1.2 billion was spent in one year with just eight private consulting firms uh, in, in a largely unaccountable way for work that the report said should have been completed in-house by the APS. So, you know, as I said, clearly, like, the, the kind of conclusion from these kind of behaviours is that we're hollowing out the public services ICT skill set and the ability to sort of use taxpayer money efficiently. Um, um, so, that, you know, that this has kind of prompted a bunch of things. What you know, One is very much around sort of, you know, how do we reinvigorate the ability of the public service to do these sort of projects and, and you know, to build better career pathways to attract technology talent, attract workers to the public service. But, I mean, it, you know, it's it's a bit of a tough one because, I mean, I you know, the, the, in some cases I think it's legitimate to go to consulting companies. In some yeah. cases, you know, you should use your in-house. How do you sort of parse that? I mean, I'm conscious that we are a consulting company, right? right? So, so I'm going to tell you that you know outsourcing <laughs> is is um, totally legitimate, and and there, I mean, there are very good reasons for outsourcing, right? There are very good reasons to um, to not try to build an internal capability for for a particular function. Um, you know, that it might be because. You can't, you know, you, uh, this is something we see a lot in kind of privacy cybersecurity is it's a really hot market. There's a lot of um, demand for people with skills and experience, and it can be really hard to get and retain staff with those skills. So, you know, it, it might well be uh, we've, we've seen clients that have sought to build internal teams and really struggled and so, you know, decided to um, to push some of that work to us, for example. Um, so you know, so so there's that that's that's one one potential reason. Another is that like a lot of the time it just doesn't make sense, right? To to have really deep um, 
uh, specific expertise in in a particular topic that you probably won't use for you know for for the majority of the year but you've got this like really strong capability so like an example of that is um is like uh, uh incident response right um privacy data breach response um and incident response teams around that for for privacy or security or forensics that flow in after a major data breach for a lot of companies it, it doesn't make sense to build that capability in-house is relatively mature services you can just ring in to do it and you, hopefully it's only happening you know once every few years um in, in that kind of major incidents kind of sense so you know i i think there's there, there's there are very good reasons for outsourcing but yeah i mean looking at that report i can only agree with the you know the 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 statements there that you know it should be a last resort it should be you know, you shouldn't be relying on, and the the Australian Public Service shouldn't be relying on contractors so so deeply for just the core business of of an organisation or of the public service. Um, you know, when the the and the more that it's it's a kind of really damaging cycle as well, right? The more you push the work out, the less internal capability, the less ability you have to to do it yourself and it's it, it just kind of yeah it's a vicious cycle um but yeah what what, what was your thoughts yeah i think i think that's right i think when it comes to sort of the capabilities like you say there's a spectrum of things that are maybe more strategic more niche more specialist that warrant going outside and then there are particularly the sort of descriptions around kind of core you know sort of core uh standard kind of work the putting that outside the organization seems unnecessary. I, I had sort of two uh, sort of reflections on this, particularly in relation to the sort of work we're doing around kind of privacy, security. And what, one was that a lot of um, the focus of the work and, and, and the sort of the success, making these projects succeed around security transformations, privacy transformation, a lot of it comes down to shaping kind of internal culture and embedding things within dna and i do have a concern sometimes that if you if you if you view these projects purely in terms of just like there's a capability or there's a a thing that needs to be implemented and then you know people can do that and go away you're not tackling that cultural transformation that needs to happen um, and so we talk a lot about you know these things that kind of being by, by design and embedded. And I think that requires uh, at least some level of commitment to building your own internal workforce and capability who can, you know, really make those practices part of the DNA. Um, because a lot of the challenge with making kind of things like privacy and security part of an organization's DNA, whether that's a private sector organization or a public sector, is to sort of weave those missions around privacy and security into the broader kind of value set of the organization you know and it requires kind of leaders to sort of be able to go out and talk to other parts of the business of the other parts of the organization and sort of make it become part of organically part of the way you do things and i think a lot of that comes down to someone within your own organization speaking to you on in terms of you know in the language and the culture and the value set of your organization so that i mean it's a bit fluffy yeah. 
But I think there's yeah. there's a, a real risk in saying this entire kind of concern around privacy or security is something we'll go to an external consultant to come we in and deliver it. into yeah. us and potentially leave. And so yeah, and it's not something I have to deal with, right? Or I have to think about. I don't have to change my behaviour. We've got a we've got a specialist for that. Yeah, 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 exactly. So I think, you know, when you, I think when you think about those projects, it's important not just to think of them as sort of delivered capabilities. Sometimes it's about, well, what am I trying to build within my organization? What kind of culture, what tone, what, what DNA am I trying to sort of shape? So that, that I think would then change the calculus when you think about contractors. Mm -hmm. And, and the other, the other sort of, you know, perspective on this, I think is, as we have talked about a lot in these conversations, a lot of these projects, a lot of these, you know, um, you know, technology initiatives have a really big public uh, policy um, aspect to them. You know, they're, they're, these are things that impact the way citizens interact with government and interact with each other. And so there's a real lens around sort of, mm. you know, public policy and, and what is it in the interest of the nation and the citizenship. It's not just about delivered capability and expertise. And I feel like, you know, this might be a naive view, but I feel like that's what the APS is heavily geared around being. It's about this organization that has the ability to give fearless and frank advice into sort of the executive, but also has this broad public policy lens, uh, which may not necessarily always exist if you're just going out to sort of the specialist skilled external contractor to come in and deliver something. So I think, you know, in the design of these projects, design of these initiatives around ICT work and, uh, and technology projects, I think the APS has actually a lot of value to add. And yeah. that's, so that's yeah. the other part of this, I would add. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's right on. I think, I mean, I so I, I spent the most of the, the start of my career in, in the public service and it's a little less so now, but like like there there is still a sense that, the, I mean, the word public servant, right? The, the, there is a duty, there's a expectation that people working in the public service are servants of the public interest. That is your job. Um, and that that does put them in distinction to a contractor who comes in or a you know working in the private sector where you know you you much more economic financial kind of interests um so yeah i i think that's i think that's a really good point that that it's not just about the i mean you know the, the finances in the practical sense and the internal capability is relevant but i think also just in a, in a really principled way, who is doing the job is relevant and what they're, you know, yeah, wh whether they are, yeah, a member of the public service working in the public interest or, or a contractor who is, you know, still doing the, the right work, but not, not with that kind of fundamental motivation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, that's, that's been another, another good conversation. I've enjoyed that. I mean, I think, you know, like you say, there's, I think there's hopefully better days ahead in both those realms, like whether it's sort of the regulatory sphere with kind of, you know, the reforms coming, but also there have been kind of various reports like this into the public service. And as we sort of talk more and more about kind of technology initiatives coming out of government, that this will hopefully be... You know, something that's front of mind is like, how can we, how can we equip these bodies to actually get this stuff right because it has consequences? Yeah. yeah.
Yeah, yeah, don't know. There's yeah, some some good stories. I mean, you know, I'm hopeful for the Privacy Act reform. I'm less hopeful for the defamation laws. You know, <laughs> as someone said on Twitter, it'd be nice. It'd be nice if uh, Australia could be leading the world with good technology policy, not yeah. <laughs> you know, insane technology policy. Yeah. But oh well. We we will hope that you know the next time we have this conversation, that we're we're getting kind of patted on the back all around the world for, for something exactly. rather than exactly. what we saw this week, which is some fairly hefty criticism. But yeah, until yeah, then, we'll I guess we'll uh, we'll live in hope. We'll live in hope. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Thanks, Jordan. See you next time. Yep. See you next time. Bye. Bye.